This episode of the Anti-Heroes Podcast with Zach Blair is presented by Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest's best source for premium new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle and Portland shops, you'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I personally always make a stop at Thunder Road Guitars in Seattle. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys, and it's just not a complete Seattle trip unless I go and say hi and see what uh, wonderful stuff they have. These are real people offering real service, folks. Uh, use code ANTIHEROES10 to get 10% off at www.thunderroadguitars.com and tell them I sent you. Hey guys, this is Zach from the Anti-Heroes Podcast, and I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Can you believe that? Anti-Heroes listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Thank you so much and support all the folks at DistroKid because they're they're doing amazing work and we couldn't be happier to have them on board. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. Welcome to the Anti-Heroes Podcast with your host, Zach Blair. I am Zach Blair. How are you? How is everybody doing? You're driving. You're listening to me. I'm so appreciative because all I'm going to do is talk about guitar stuff. So hopefully that interests you in some way, shape, or form. <clears throat> I know it does me. This interview today, I get to talk to a legendary guitar player, Pete Kramiak from uh, the legendary Rhode Island hardcore band, Verbal Assault. Um, now these guys were super influential. This is uh, 80s. Uh, they've gotten back together as of recent last year, played some shows. I'm gonna talk to Pete about uh, their motivations and what they, how they started, who their peers were. Cause I mean, you know, this is Rhode Island folks. You know, this wasn't a place, it's like a, a theme of this podcast when I talk to these people from different remote areas. Um, how we all just sort of absorbed what we could and you know they're in Rhode Island where you know the punk and the hardcore thing is coming out of New York City and if you listen to their stuff I mean geez there's a lot of you know sick of it all influence there's a lot of all hardcore influence I mean uh, I'm saying that those bands got influenced by Verbal Assault they, you know, Verbal Assault predated those bands and so they took a lot from them and just kind of where those influences came for them and you know sort of what Pete's been up to since then and what's been going on you know I'll quit blathering once again thank you guys so much for listening and uh, let's get into my conversation with Pete Kremiak
Hello, everyone. I've just done my intro, as you've heard, and I'm talking to Pete Kramiak. Am I pronouncing that right? It's pretty close, Kramiak. Kramiak! Similar to Maniac. So when the Flashdance movie came out with the Maniac song, that was fun for me, being mocked in sixth grade. I remember there was the Lego, the Zack Zack, he's a Lego maniac. And yeah. I, rem- I remember yeah. seeing that commercial and just thinking, oh, fuck. Here it comes. I don't even fucking play with Lego. Anyway. Hi, Pete. How you doing? Hey, How's I'm doing really up? good. I'm, ex- I'm excited. I'm like nervous. Well, you should- we're just going to talk nerd guitar shit. I know. It'll fade. And why you play and shit. And so we have the uh, mutual friend of Joseph Plummer, uh, who does the Tour Stories podcast and uh, mutual friend. And he put us in touch. And like I was saying uh, before we started recording, he knew I was into crossover, thrash, punk, and hardcore in late 80s and yeah. And he's like, did you like Verbal Assault? I was like, of course I like fucking Verbal Assault. Who didn't? Nice. So it's very nice to talk to you. So you guys have, have gotten back together. You played some shows last year. Is that what happened? Yeah, we played 18 shows this year. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't believe it. Um, yeah, it went from not a chance in hell for 30 years to, oh, fuck it, let's do a show. And then um, just kept it going. We did a bunch of like four-day stints all over the place. That's great. You know what? What was the what was the deciding factor? Why? Did, what was the decision to uh, run up to the twenty twenty election? You know, people are always asking us about it, and for thirty years, it was just like, no, we're this is not going to happen. And then uh, just you know, everything was so politically fucking fraught and torturous, and um, I kept thinking like, what could I do on any scale? And it kind of kept shrinking to uh, the scale of like well, fuck it, if I could just give my couple hundred friends in Rhode Island a great night that they've wanted for 30 years, I should do it just for the psychic goodwill. And then I was I was literally booked to go the day the all the flights sort of stopped on the pandemic. So uh, then we had kind of more time to talk about it and build up to it. And then as soon as we could, I just went out and practiced a few times and it was really immediately fun and... That's great. And we, yeah, and so we did it. If there's one good thing to have come out of the the worst president of our time, um, it yeah. was that good classic bands got back together like yourselves and some good art got made as a result of telling him to go fuck himself. Yeah. If anyone listens to this podcast and wanted to know my political affiliation, <laughs> there it is right there. <laughs> I fucking hate uh, that man. Anyway. Um, that fucking guy. Yeah, fucking guy. But you know, it was like when you guys were around in the first place, it was sort of a reaction to the Reagan years, was it not? Exactly. And so here comes this other president, a sort of mirror. I mean, if anything, it's the Reagan years on steroids. It's even so much worse, if that could be imagined. And how fitting is it that a band of your ilk got back together to sort of bookend it in a sort of a weird way? Yeah. I mean, lyrically, it's we couldn't be more relevant you know and even with like russia and ukraine like we have like reagan sucks lyrics cold war lyrics um it all just fits in and lots of like you know just general be a good human lyrics which uh it's good to good to go back over when you're in your 50s well that was what was great about punk and hardcore music though let's face it it was like it was sort of just holding a mirror up to what was going on and these were younger people that were sort of 
voted out essentially or not their opinions weren't respected and they were saying the most culturally relevant and and politically diverse profound things you know that were coming out of you know basements and vfw halls and shit like that and you know yourself very much included were you guys considered as you were inside of it were you considered sort of a crossover thing because when i listen i do hear sort of like palm muting and you know the things that like sort of i don't know if they were friends of yours or whatever but like the dri sort of because they had the album crossover of course there was like metal guitar influences and things like dag nasty and things like that who i talked to brian about that as well was that something you guys were considered um when trial came out we got a lot of that because you know i had a kind of more i don't know what the word for it is uh techie guitar sound kind of sure i had like a stereo thing which was kind of weird and um and yeah i was chugging more than a lot of people were chugging and i i'd like I'm not a metal guy. Like I was, I got a Mesa Boogie, and then uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> you just naturally that sounds good. It makes me feel happy. Yeah. Um, so we would often get added into those articles, you know, when they were written. But um, it wasn't like a thing we wanted. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know we were crossovery. I just you're just doing what you did. Yeah, and, and the right when we recorded trial, a, a couple things like basically the guitar sound changed right before and. I fell upon that stereo concoction that I came up with that kind of became our sound that, yeah. I, I mean, people to this day still bug me about like, how the fuck do you get that sound? You know, and I was, I was going to ask you about that too. Is there a chorus happening in there somewhere? I, I brought it up from the basement for a little show and tell. Ah, the story is pretty fucking good. It's uh verbal thought would be like, we'd play with Dag Nasty every time they would come, th- come through. And Brian obviously had a huge influence and in all that. And, you know, so we would just try to glom onto every show anywhere near New England, we'd sneak on. But Brian at one point showed up and he had like his fucking beautiful Marshall, but then he had this thing. Okay. So it was just a rack mount boss chorus. Yeah. But it has these little fucking like, you know, the little level lights. Yep. 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 If everyone can't see it is as a rack mount boss chorus unit from the eighties. That was yeah. sort of, sort of prevalent in a lot of rigs at that point. Yeah, so for like maybe like 10 shows, I'm just standing in front of Brian watching the little red lights while he's doing his just magical wizardry from his hands. Yeah. But the, I swear to those little fucking lights, you get just mesmerized, you know, like uh-huh. when you're a little kid watching like a newer cassette deck. And uh, it reminded me of, do you remember when like cassette decks, all of a sudden they had the heavy, slow eject doors? Yes, yes. I thought that was the best thing in the world. And I would just go to the like JCPenney and like hit the slow eject. <laughs> but it was the same thing with those lights. I loved those lights and hearing Brian play magical tag nasty songs at the same time. So my grandmother lived not far from the Discord house magically. So I had this cool reason to go to DC before I could even drive. I could like take Amtrak down there and like spend time with grandma, but I would just go and hang out with the punks and pester Ian. And I was at the Dag Nasty house and I was good friends with Roger and Colin, especially Brian. I always felt kind of like the little pest, you know, like, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, I, I still feel like that with Brian. Yeah. And we were chatting for a bit and his rig was there. And I was like, what the fuck is this thing? He's like, oh, you want to buy that? And I was like, this magical chorus of the lights. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, did you use it on Can I Say? And he's like, oh, yeah, probably didn't. But he knew he could sell it <laughs> if he said it. And so I was like, fuck yeah. And I remember it was 125 bucks. And I was like, I seriously had like this greedy feeling. Like I felt like Bilbo sneaking out of like Gollum's cave with the ring. Uh-huh. Like, I have, like I have the magic. You had fucking, 
I had it. And I like drove up to Rhode Island fast. And then how my guitar sound happened was I got back to Newport, went to our practice space and uh, my buddy, Tom Gorman, who was in Verbal Assault sometimes. And uh, he went on to be in that band Belly. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. But he was in Verbal Assault uh, like really early on. And then, then later, but he had just gotten a Mesa Boogie Mark three. Okay. There's a new guitar store in town uh, that started carrying him, and we're like, "What the fuck are these?" Because we didn't, no one in punk played those. Never seen one. Didn't know that Metallica used them. But then in the store, we'd play them, and we we're like, "Jesus fucking Christ, this sounds incredible!" And he bought one. They're really expensive at the time. So I got back from my trip. Tom was in the space. I was in the space. Set up my Marshall. Plugged in the the chorus, and immediately we were both like, "Fuck, that sounds good." Yeah, And then it occurred to me that it had two outputs. I had never had a chorus in my life up to that point. And I was like, dude, there's a second output. Put it in your boogie. And he did turn on the boogie, and I started playing uh, Running, which is, uh, to me, that's my fucking opus, yeah, best song I've ever written. I started playing that, and it's, you know, through a really nice old Marshall and a brand new boogie in stereo, and both of us are in between them. And we both had, uh, like, my face, you know, it was like Christmas. And uh-huh. I looked at Tom, and Tom had the same face for a second. But then Schmiegel, like, he realized that it was my sound because I did it first. And then he got, like, a greedy greedy thing, uh-huh. like, oh, he's, it's his. And then, uh, Fuck. anyways, much like uh, Schmiegel's ring, it was uh, it was so powerful, I could never turn it off after that day. Yeah. You know, everyone's like, oh, he's the chorus guy. The power of the stereo chorus. That fucking thing. And then, yeah, the, my band after that, I, I finally like swore it off. And yeah, it wasn't as fun. I missed it. Yeah, but you know what? It was that you were part of that great thing in the 80s where guys discovered the chorus. And I mean, I'm talking, you know, Dr. No on the Quickness record, even I Against I, um, yourself, the Seven Seconds records, you know, like Soul Force Revolution and all things. Brian, for sure. Um it was that chorus added to hardcore music and it made it pop and it made it glisten in this really cool way. And it's because I was buying records, you know, that was like my records, you know, we, we were, my brother and I were, I've told this story a thousand times. We're from Texas and we were into thrash metal and crossover and hardcore and punk and everything, anything that was counterculture. And we were buying those records as they were coming out. So it's this comforting sound, this guitar sound to me that I just love so much. For, for me, it was the embrace record. I left that one out. Just that opening riff. And then, yeah. Um, yeah, so that and the Can I Say record where I was just like, I, I need some of that, you know? And you hear some of those guys talk about it and they were like, oh, some of them were influenced by like Peter Buck, you know, like R.E.M. and stuff. And it's and that that's a weird reference, I always thought. I remember these days so clearly. And there was a lot of closet U2 fans, you know, that just wanted that ethereal. Because it was a very refreshing sound when it, started happening all the like, yeah. whooshy and the delays even too but um you too it was a dividing uh thing it's kind of if you think about it, it's kind of what broke minor thread up because brian and, and lyle wanted to go you too we and ian was like fuck that and uh, yeah 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 and then on our first big tour it was a seven seconds tour and that was right when Kevin was just like, fuck it. I'm wearing a fringy jacket and uh, uh-huh. I'm going to write more, you know, like he wanted more U2E chorusy yeah. stuff. And uh, yeah, I, for me, like I still wanted to play spooky, scary, more black flaggy, Dr. No 
stuff. And the course still works for that. But um, it totally does, and it makes it even creepier in a weird way. You know what I mean? There's like a there's like a such a cool thing, and I think that's what that was sort of when hardcore music and punk rock music, and let's face it, you know, Discord took that route, the U2, REM, and I'm not saying they, those bands sounded like that. They did just get influenced by what else was going on. And let's, you know, for lack of a better term, alternative or college music or whatever. And they sort of went and did likewise and did their own thing with it and created this other sound. Uh, but I think that's definitely where it where it went with that. So your guitar choices back then, in the pictures I've seen, there were a lot of Gibsons going on. It looked like there was a like a Les Paul studio, is that what was happening? Or was that just the Paul? So the, yeah, the first, I had a shitty fake Strat thing, you know, for my first year. And then I wanted a Les Paul so bad. It was like, I just needed, like I had this one picture of Al Burrill doing a yeah. fucking sick jump, you know? And and also the that Code of Honor record, like the skateboards and the Les Paul on the brick wall. I would just stare at those two fucking things. And I just wanted a Les Paul so bad. And um all the skate punks in my town just worked at these two like tourist restaurants all summer. And the uh, end of the summer, I had, I had just enough to buy the uh, studio, which was, it turns out that was the first year they made the studio. Oh, no kidding. And it, yeah. And then um, if we get to the things that got away segment of the podcast, I'm a listener. Oh, you've listened. You've listened. Oh, I've listened to almost all of them, but it, uh, I have a Thank great you. story about, about that Les Paul, but I only from 10th grade on, I only had that one guitar. All my tours, I only had one guitar. No shit. Um, I, yeah, and we, I break strings almost every show. We got really good at just, uh, the band would go off onto some Space Jam, and I'd, I could change strings so fucking fast, it's crazy. And uh, yeah. I mean, like, probably 500 shows with just the one guitar. Wow. And even now, I've just been... I'm just out of habit. I just take the one guitar. Now I'm traveling all the way back to the East Coast every time on the West Coast. That brings up a question. You guys were from Prov- uh, from Rhode Island, correct? Yeah, Newport, Rhode Island. Newport, not Providence. Um, I mean, that's interesting. And, and I, that's been a, a theme with this as well. I'm from this like really small, shitty, terrible town. And Which one? Uh, Sherman, Texas. Sherman. Um, yeah, terrible. dallas It's about an hour north of Dallas. So it's sort of a suburb of Dallas. But- I wonder if you guys had the same thing where, yes, you were on the East Coast, but you weren't in sort of a punk mecca, you know? It's kind of like with, with the Seven Seconds guys being from Reno. And and you were around at the time when you were probably the band that other bands stayed with when they were up your way. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that there was the big boys in Austin here, and then, you know, like Seven Seconds at Reno. Yeah, COS, yeah, you know what I mean? So you guys were probably the one in Newport, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, New, Newport, I mean, being on the West Coast now, like, in, you know, there's Portland, Seattle, but everything's so far. Newport was, you know, it's 40 minutes to Providence, hour and a half to Boston, three and a half hours to New York. Right. So we were in this perfect, and it's an, it's literally an island. There's bridges, but it's, it's an island. There's a little bit of a, you know, it's like emotionally getting off the island is a, feels further. Yeah. But we, we had a, it was like this fucking incredible insular little scene just on the island. We probably had like 60 skateboarding hardcore, just like all in kids. Um, wow. And then nearby, like there's a Barrington crew, this band Idle Rich was were sort of one of our kind of big brother bands. Um, right. And then, you know, Providence was literally 45 minutes away. So it seemed, it was like a road trip to get there, but it was a tiny one. Right. Um, sure. And then 
youth of today dudes were like my main road trip buddies, you know, for all the early years. And if there's a bad rain show anywhere between, you know, New York or Boston, we'd all. Did you guys kind of play with Boston bands a whole lot? Like, the, oh God, like you said, yeah. Alboril, like SSD or, you know, Slapshot or Gangrene or whatever? Um, yeah, most, I mean, uh, it seemed like at least once a month you play with FU's, Jerry's Kids, Gangrene. Uh, SSD, you know, they sort of shifted to like, like I saw maybe only three times because they were, you know, they they started only like going to like California and like kind of playing these like bigger shows, but they didn't, they weren't hammering away every month like, you know, all the other Boston bands were. Right. They were early on, you know, they, they set up the whole all ages landscape, but then they weren't as around much. I, I, um, and they were, like the biggest, toughest dudes. Like I was able to, just, you know, I was a tiny pimply kid at this point and I was pretty shy, but I would fucking make myself meet all these people. But SSD were like bigger and scarier. And I like, to this day, even on Facebook, I love Al Burrell. Like he's the funniest motherfucker. And, uh, but I, I'm still like a little kid, like too afraid to go up and say, you know, like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun, you know, we're from Rhode Island. I've had a lot of talks about them with Mike Gitter, who I'm sure you know Mike Gitter as well. Yeah, no, well. Yeah. Yeah, he's the best. He's the best. Yep. Hello, Mike Gitter, if you're listening. Um, anyway, uh, well, actually, before we get into your one that got away, who were your guys? Who were your guys that you wanted to be like? Who were your your guitar influences? It, it was all DC. It was, I mean, starting with Doctor No, like there's everyone, and then there was him. It was to this day. I've never even tried to learn a Bad Brain song. I don't even. It's like this untouchable, you know, can't even understand. I agree with you. Uh, what he's doing. And there are those bands that everyone tries to cover and no one gets right. Don't cover the bad brains. Yeah, you don't cover bad brains. You don't cover, and, and my band has covered Black Flag. We've covered Ramones, but there's those bands that, and, and fortunately, I've had the, the luck of my career pretty much satelliting from Bill Stevenson for my entire, you know, life. Hmm. And Bill has the theory that no band, covers black flag correctly they're, they're he's yeah. you know he's so collegiate about black flag but so many of those bands were like that and that's what made him so so interesting and great and and perfect in their own way because they were four guys that played very specifically and the bad brains or the ramones or whatever with the sum of their parts mm -hmm. and so if you're not phrasing the way daryl jennifer played bass or the way earl hudson yeah. played drums or you know you're not gonna sound like that song yeah you can do sailing on but you're not gonna it's not done right and it's almost a travesty yeah i mean they were uh you know dr no was already a pretty accomplished like jazz musician and unless you're going to go down that whole road to get back to bad brains, you're not going to, mm -hmm. you're not going to figure it out. And anyone that talks about the bad brains from this era or anyone that's seen him just knows it was a magical fucking hour. You know, no one could touch it. Um, but I didn't want to play like Dr. No, but I wanted to try to make those just feelings happen. You know, like I was fucking transported. I mean, any of those tempo change breakdown buildups, it's, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Oh Yeah. So he was the one guy that if I ever wanted to really play leads, you know, I, I can't even call his things leads because they were just, you know, phrases and They're stories. like soundscapes. It's not like he's just like attacking a pentatonic scale. It's like, right. it's a different thing. So as a young guitar player wanting to be like Dr. No, I, you know, I, I try, but I was like, I just can't do that. So, uh, but he was, you know, that was my unattainable goal. 
the DC stuff was more attainable, but it was literally, it was, you know, obviously Brian, uh, but Tom Lyle sure. uh, should be mentioned in every conversation because he was, I, I think, as a songwriter, I mean, how many just epic, beautiful, scary fucking riffs can you write in one 10-year period? And he just had so many hits per record. It was crazy. Right. Um, Mike Hampton, guy's pretty good. Yeah. I always forget to mention Scream, but the Still Screaming album was probably top five formative records. Well, you know, Cap- um, the, the Captain, it, 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 it's funny you mention him because Brian, you know, he's Brian's guy, you know, and Brian will just, mm. it's all Captain Sensible, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they, everyone from DC everyone. loves the Damned. Everyone. And then uh, I moved there and I was like, I was more of a Clash guy. And well, yeah, I was like, yeah. eh, Clash is okay. But it's all about Damned. I, I just never, to this day, I'm like, all right, if you say so. Uh, they, there was an epic show that I think the Bad Brains played that they were all at. And it was the show that, you know, turned them all. Uh, back to, 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 to your point about Dr. No, I was in a band in the 90s that toured with them when they got back together. And, um, you know, I picked Dr. No's brain about who his guys were then. And it was Alan Holdsworth and, you know, John McLaughlin and the, the My Vision Orchestra and Al Demiola and Return to Forever and all of that shit. And then it made so much sense. You know, it really did. But look what he did with that. No shit. How fucking cool is that? Yeah. I I don't know if we should even go down... Well, so in, I moved to DC for about six years and starting in 1988. And that year I went to college um, and I took the first music theory class in my life. I never, I kind of tried to stay away from all that because mm-hmm. it wasn't punk. <laughs> and uh, so I took a music theory and a jazz improv class. And so that was my first real exposure and just kind of letting myself, like I I never, uh, I listened to the Chris Shiflet podcast last week and just talking about like guitar player magazine and tablature i never i would never look at them i would never get one of those like opening one to me was like cheating because i was such a little bratty purist you know sure. I was like, no you can't you can't look at the magic and uh it, it was like a conscious decision to only learn from like looking at people and and I'm, i don't have a great ear i've never been able to just like play along with records. I'm a, even if I know it's a G chord, it never sounds right. And I just can never do it. <laughs> right. So it's just like, I had to either absorb it at a show or come up with it, you know, just on my own. And then that all changed this one year, the first year in DC. And, you know, where all of a sudden I was like, you know, I knew all the Mixolydian scales and the Phrygian scales uh-huh. and the Dorian scales. And, and uh, you can sort of hear that on the, on EP we did. It yeah. gets pretty, pretty noodly. And it was, that was my first connection to be like, oh, this is, it was like the first tangible connection to what Dr. No was doing. Whereas like little tiny parts of like, especially the Mixolydian scale. Yeah. I was like, oh fuck, this is. You start connecting the dots. Oh shit. I think I found, I found something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it was that, that year sort of haunted me. Cause um, now that I knew about keys and scales, I had a hard time getting back out. You know, I would just listen to rise above and I'd be like, that is not in a fucking key. And it, you know, <laughs> I, I, I felt like I lost that path in my life because now sure. to get out of a minor and major scale, I, I, it was way harder to do. It took years to get back to just being able to get out of that template. You know, speaking of Rise Above and, and Greg Ginn, um, what blew my mind about him was hearing The Shape of Jazz to Come, was hearing Ornette Coleman and realizing that that's what he was doing. 
Well, he wasn't just deliberately playing out of key for playing out of key's sake. He was doing Ornette Coleman, and he very much knew his scales and his key, his his, huh. his theory, and all of his stuff. Um, I've all never of, known. I've never known his back the backstory there. All of those SST guys, you know, he's their Jimi Hendrix. Every one of them. And oh God, yeah, and and he was de deliberately doing something. And to know mm -hmm. that was such a game changer for me. It was such a mind blower. And like, here's this kid that's referencing this jazz icon that no one's even fucking heard of, you know, and doing it in this way and bringing it in. It's, just, it's, a, it's mind blowing. Even back then, he was so skilled. And, yeah. it, you know, the notes were, they didn't make any sense yeah. to me. Yeah. And they sounded fucking, and he did it with so much authority that you're like, it seemed like it was just coming from above and through his fingers. It was like know? dictation from a celestial being or something. And you're right, such authority, such authority. Just on stage in those videos where he's just looking at the crowd, staring them down like, yeah, I'm playing way out of key and you're fucking taking it. You know what I mean? Like, oh. it's awesome. Well, yeah, there's only one of those guys. That's, that is for sure. Uh, so well, since you broached the subject, what is the one that got away? Uh, so the that studio Les Paul... Um, Late summer 1989, we're about to go to Europe for the second time. Show up at the practice space, the lock's broken off. Oh. My guitar's gone, my Marshall's gone, the Brian's stereo chorus rack effect is gone, bass amp is gone, and uh, for some reason the boogie wasn't gone, probably because no one knew what a boogie was back then, and they right. just saw the Marshall and was like, oh. So magically they didn't take the boogie, but you know, we were leaving in like eight days. I was just about to, back then we crated everything up, including my cabinets and just sent this one big crate uh, over there. Cause uh, the first two where we didn't do that. And, you know, I was playing out of like a PV bandit with like a, you know, like all kinds of crazy amps every night. Mm -hmm. So all the shit was fucking gone. We had to leave in a week, just devastated. And that, you know, that guitar, I literally like worked all summer at the shitty restaurant washing dishes to to pay for yeah and so i made flyers i had all the serial numbers that have always been sort of organized that way and went up to providence just to like put them in every music store and me and a bass player darren were driving up to providence and i missed the exit and i remember there's this one weird little music store if you're in providence and you're vegan you probably go to plant city this really great vegan restaurant it was in that parking lot right off the highway and so we kind of spun around i didn't even know how to really get there i just knew it was down there went into this music store uh the guy at the counter was talking to someone so we were just kind of waiting with our flyers and this little fucking captain kangaroo looking guy kind of looked like an australian captain kangaroo like dock shore worker kind of scruffy with like tinted glasses walks in with my fucking guitar case in his hand, verbal salt spray painted on it. While you're there. Well, I'm there. Oh my God. And, but he has this little like kid, this little like four year old kid, you know, he has his, my guitar in one hand and this little kid in the other. And he was, he was like, not a big dude, but like, he looked fucking pretty gnarly and tough. And I wasn't like, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I'm not like much of a fucking fist fight or anything, but I just, my body just went right up to him and both hands just grabbed the fucking guitar. And I was like, dude, this is my fucking guitar. What are you doing with it? And, uh, you know, he got kind of sheepish. I think if the little kid wasn't there, he probably would have just fucking kicked my ass and ran. But he had this little kid and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to let go of the guitar. And, he gave the story about finding it in the bushes behind the Newport library and 
And I was like, huh. And then I noticed his T-shirt was uh, LNH, which is the construction company that was working on the building. Oh. So I, I figured it out right then. And he's like, okay, well, yeah, I'm glad you found your guitar. I turned and really quick and just bolted out. And he, he had this little kid with him. You know, I was like, he knows where the rest of my shit is. So I didn't exactly know what the fuck to do. I was thrilled to have my guitar. So me and me and Darren like follow him to his guitar. And I, that little goddamn kid, I couldn't, you know, I was like, the whole time I was, I was like talking to him about my guitar. I knew I was trying not to embarrass him in front of the little kid. Yeah. I, I was like, I was more concerned about the kid than, uh, than solving the, the main problem. Anyways, I got that guitar back. We flew back to Newport. I figured out where the construction company was told him the story. They gave me his address. I got Doug, who was a little older, our drummer, just for a little backup. And we went to the house and his like wife or old lady answers the door. And she has two even smaller kids in this little shitty hotel room. And we were like, look, just, we know your husband, boyfriend, whatever took our shit. I got the guitar back. We're leaving for Europe. We won't call the cops. We just need our shit back, please. You know? And she's like, okay, okay, okay. And, and nothing happened. And Did she have the stuff? I mean, it was one as a one hotel room thing. It wasn't in that room. It was probably in his van. You know, we followed him back to this van. And then two days later, we kind of staked the place out. And uh, then they disappeared. And uh, that was that. So you never got the other stuff back? I never got the other stuff back. And the thing that got away part is that because we had to leave in like two days, I, I went up to Boston um, had to replace the, you know, the effects, Brian's chorus and a digital delay. And I, I was using the delay a lot at that point and I couldn't find those. So I bought a Roland, I think it was like called the GT eight. It was okay. like their first guitar all in one effects processor. Right. So I bought that and I bought like a brand new JCM 800. I'd kill for an 800 now, like a good one, but those two things never, they never sounded quite right the effects they were kind of early generation digital and they just sounded kind of chintzy to my ear. Right. But I, by that point I had bought them. So I was stuck with them in, in those days, you know, if you got it, you're going to live with it if you, you could. So the guitar never sounded quite as good after that moment. That's still a crazy story though. You just happened to go into this store that you weren't going to in the first place. You just, yeah. you didn't even know where it was. And then the dude walks in with your guitar. That's insane universe talking crazy shit. That's nuts. What's even weirder is that when I moved to DC, um, you know, we had toured Europe a couple of times and a lot of band friends would come and visit. And this Polish band, my, my dad was born in Poland. I still have a lot of family there. I just have a soft spot. And there was this one Polish band, Ahimsa, and they, they made the track to DC, which I knew was like, you know, pretty huge trip for them. They had a lot of money. They wanted to visit me and then they wanted to get a Les Paul. And so I was, you know, took them all around DC and Maryland and Virginia. And, you know, about two hours in, I was like, so how much, like, how much money do you have for, for Les Paul? And they're, they kind of have this like proud look on their face and they're like, we have $500. And I was like, <laughs> Ooh, yeah, this is like 1991 or two. Yeah. You know, I took them around and everything was 1500 or, and then, um, <clears throat> they were kind of depressed and we got back to my place. And, uh, when we verbal salt stopped, we were pretty resolute. Like we weren't going to be one of those bands that showed back up to make a bunch of money and, right. you know, do like a reunion tour just for, for kicks. And, 
at least not for three decades. And anyways, before they, they left, I was like, well, basically I just gave him the guitar. Oh, to, that's so cool. Well, so, so when, but when Verbal Salt was like getting back together, you know, I tracked him back down. Still, ha- he still has it. And I was like, look, if Verbal Salt really does this show, I might need that thing. It's, it's the only guitar I ever used on everything we recorded. And he was, you know, he was down, but he didn't want to sell it. He's like, no fucking way I'm selling it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's had it for 30 years. I've only had it for like eight. So we, you know, we chatted back and forth. But then um, I had bought a Thupol, the, the guitar you mentioned at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. And so basically I just slapped an EMG in that and it sounded exactly the same. And then I learned that the Paul was just like a two year run up to this, the idea of the studio. It was just going to be the stripped down version, less expensive, less Paul. And uh, since then I got, I got, I found, uh, you know, my original uh, studio on reverb just a couple months ago and, and got it. Yes, exact same. It was built five weeks before the other one. Wow. You know, same factory. So that's what you used at the reunion shows? No, I was. I didn't have time to get an EMG in it, so I, I haven't used it. Um, I got another The Paul and put an EMG in that and leave that in Rhode Island. Uh, the, the Paul and then the, there was the SG, um, yeah. which I think Ian... Makai had the SG uh, and yeah. and yeah, those were great. Those were great guitars. So you're an EMG guy. So you're a you're a uh, active pickup guy. Well, kind of. I mean, kind of like all my gear. I got lucky with my first real Marshall. Just a perfect head. Didn't need a distortion pedal. I didn't really play with pedals at all, just because the stage was sure. There's so many people on the stage all the time. You know, it always get turned off, and. You know, so I committed to that. I got the boogie, and then it was really like once you got it, you had to work with what you got. And then when I got the boogie, the guitar didn't it didn't have enough oomph anymore for that amp. And uh, that same guitar store just started selling EMG pickups, and he's like, "Yeah, they have more gain." And I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "You know, it's more distorted." And I was I was like, "Okay," um, and plopped that in, and yeah. and that yeah, that was the last ingredient of that. It's funny you say that about pedals because when I interview punk rock guitar players and hardcore guitar players, um, because we come from that, we come from playing improvised sort of spaces, you know, people's houses and in basements and VFW halls. You know, we made it work without pedals. And then you talk to a guy that maybe was a country musician or even a metal musician or whatever, and they always use pedals. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like we, we toured in vans and cars and things like that. Like we, we wanted the least amount of shit to carry in. We yeah. wanted the head to provide our distortion. We didn't have a fucking lead boost. You know, it was, yep. yeah. Yeah. A little volume knob change and that's all you needed. Pickup change, whatever you got, you know, just boom, boom. Um, well, so what have you been up to since, since Verbal Assault? Have you, uh, any other music endeavors since then? After Verbal Assault, I was still living in D.C. I had a band called Rain Like the Sound of Trains. That was less popular than Verbal Assault, but we toured just as much and worked our asses off. And by the end of that band, I was tired. I'd had a good over a decade of doing like 80s fan touring and my tinnitus was out of control. I was just tired and kind of wanted a, some something more at that point felt real. So I moved to Olympia, finished school studying organic farming, oh, which right. I quickly learned shouldn't do that. It would have been a, just a stressed out mess. <laughs> but um, that led right back to carpentry, which I, in D.C. I sort of became the handyman. Okay. Um, I kind of fixed up the Discord house a bunch and 
kind of blame Ian for both of my careers. Uh, yeah. uh, and then when I moved to Olympia, as soon as I graduated, my organic farming teacher had me build him a small cabin for his farm. And then I just got right into kind of green energy efficient building. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Bicycle home building is the name of my company. My daughter made a pretty awesome website for me oh. uh, and she put a pretty funny bio. She pranked me, but I'm just leaving it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we build super energy efficient houses. Like my house, it makes more electricity than we use kind of thing. It's amazing. And it still scratches that creative itch and, uh, and everything. It's the same as me. It's, um, I hang out with the same four dudes every day. Each house takes about a year, which is like the same as like the old touring album cycle. Like yeah. it feels so much like being in a hardcore band. It's weird. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, That's amazing. Well, congrats. And speaking of hardcore bands, are, does Verbal Assault have anything? I know you played last year, but do you have anything coming up this year? We're just taking a breather and kind of resetting it. Um, old friend Ron Martinez, Crawl Space Booking, is booking us now. I know Ron. Um, I know I know Ron very well. Uh, so we got to get back on the ball and book some stuff. We might head to Europe again. Well, if, if anyone uh, is listening, uh, go check out Verbal Assault. I mean, you do have a website. It's in a verbalassault.com, am I wrong? Yeah. Uh, it's, I think Chris has dusted it off. Uh, it was pretty, you know, 1990s, but I think Chris has uh, sharpened the pencil and got <laughs> up to date. Oh, cool. Well, I would look forward to seeing you as well if you come through Austin, Texas, or if I, I might see you on the road. I'm perpetually out there. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, you I, are. Yeah. And good job, man. I, I'm, thank you. I'm fucking proud of you. I'm really proud of you guys. The, oh, um, thank you so much. The first time I heard Rise Against, I, uh, the your fucking singer is so goddamn good. It's ridiculous. He's, so, he's such a good storyteller. I was, I was like, I've just been drawn in and appreciate you guys. Even though I'm, I'm in a band with him, I still am very much a fan of him. So I talk about him as if he isn't one of my closest friends and a, and a band member. But man, yeah. what a talent. What a talent. Um, if I do say so myself, um, it's the, it's the good storytellers that always hold up the longest. I very much agree with you there. I very much agree. And he's influenced by the right guys, you know, from, from Neil Young to Ian to, you know, he's, he's got the right influences. So, well, Pete, again, thank you so much for doing this and anybody listening, check out Verbal Assault, everything you've ever done and go see him live. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Man. Right on. Another interview down. I think I'm getting pretty good at it. I hope I'm getting pretty good at it. It's the third season. I hope everyone likes me. You know, I would uh, be remiss with two things. A, I want to thank all the lovely folks that sponsor us and that we work with and that help us do what we do. Uh, the lovely, wonderful, amazing folks over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. Uh, find out more about what they're doing over at jimdunlop.com. Also, we have new sponsors with uh, the lovely folks at Seymour Duncan Pickups. I use all of these products, Seymour Duncan, Jim Dunlop, MXR. Uh, if they weren't our sponsor, if we weren't all family, if we weren't all helping each other out here, I would still be using these products. I've used Seymour Duncan pickups ever since I replaced a pickup in my guitar when I was a kid because of Scott Ian from Anthrax said he used a Seymour Duncan JB. So I use Seymour Duncan JBs forever. And now I'm so lucky to work with Derek Duncan, Seymour Duncan's son over there. And I love Derek. Shouts out to Derek Duncan. Uh, thank you for doing what you do, buddy, and thank you for uh, 
sponsoring this podcast and working with us. We love all you folks. Uh, you guys should too. Check them all out. I would be remiss if I didn't leave you with some wonderful guitar playing by Pete. This is going to be the song Our Illusions off of the trial record from Verbal Assault. Listen to this, folks. It's a lot of, you know, the back and forth sort of palm muting, metally chugging. It was this that wonderful, amazing thing that happened. I, I guess for lack of a better term, was called crossover. Sort of the, the amazing DRI record crossover was sort of a statement on that. And, and they were, it was getting call crossovers like metal and thrash metal and punk. And and they were all sort of, you know, shaking hands in this wonderful marriage of amazing music that I was, I was here for, ladies and gentlemen, as a 13, 14, 15 year old. Uh, and Verbal Assault were one of the bigger names with, with all of it. And so we were all kind of going nuts over it. But you hear it in this song. It's, it's by and large a hardcore song. But Pete has this palm muting chugging going on that was, you know, characteristic of a lot of thrash metal at the time. If you were lucky enough to be a guitar player like I was at that time, you just wanted it all. He was just, oh my God, here's a here's a lead guitar solo happening in this hardcore band. And so uh, listen to this, get into it for yourself. Check out Verbal Assault and all the wonderful things that Pete uh, Kramiak has done in his career. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm. 